Euro 96, which Michael Gibbons has written about, so I don't want to bang on too much about Euro 96. You described Gareth Southgate's penalty as soft and frightened. Simon Hattonstone's written a very good piece in The Guardian where he talked to, of all people, Darren Anderton, uh, who said that um, Terry Venables was the key. How key do you think Gareth Southgate will be to the England team? Um, Southgate is a hard one to judge. He... He got, he got them to fourth in Russia in 2018, which looked excellent on the face of it. However, a lot of things broke their way. They, they had, a, they had a, an easy enough group. Um, they had Belgium in it, but weirdly, they played Belgium twice in the tournament, and both times it was effectively a dead rubber. And in fact, if, if, we, if we recall, a lot of the talk before the first Belgium-England game was it would be better off for either of them to lose in to order to Columbia. avoid certain teams yeah. later on in the tournament. Um, Southgate has proved so far that he's he's not an idiot, uh, but it remains to be seen. I mean, this group that they have, like it looks straightforward enough for them, but they lost to Croatia last time they played them uh, in the World Cup semi-final. They lost to the Czech Republic in Prague, uh, I think it was 2019. And the last time they played Scotland, they almost lost as well. Should have uh, lost. That was incredible. Lee, Lee Griffith scored too, yeah, and Harry Kane uh, scored from close range near the end. I think they should win Group D. Beyond that, they're, got, they're apparently if they win the group, they're going to get a team from the, the Portugal, France, Germany group. So yeah. they, they could be. They could be. I think Jonathan Wilson wrote a piece in the Guardian yesterday about how this very eventuality could do for them. Um, if they get through that, they'll be stronger than ever, and they'll have a, as good a chance as anyone of winning the whole thing. Um, and it kind of is long overdue that they won it because. As I said, their record in this tournament isn't good at all. That counts for nothing now, but historically they they haven't done well in this tournament. So they really are due. When you you look back over the list of winners over the years, Czechoslovakia won it, Greece won it, Denmark won it, Portugal won it, and England haven't even made a final. Realistically, they should be be well in the mix, assuming they can get through the last 16 tie. And of course, the real winner, if England win... Jonathan O'Brien, whose book Euro Summits will sell out its run. It's available on Kindle for $9.99 and a discount if you know where to get books. But look um, askance at someone who doesn't pay their tax. Uh, So rather than go through chronologically each tournament, I'll ask you for your all-time Euros 11. I didn't know that Henri Delaunay died before the first Euro. You, You talked about in the opening chapter of the painstaking gestation period for this tournament. You describe it as three decades of development hell. And even then, the home nation said, no, nope, sorry, we're not getting involved. Yeah, there was incredible resistance to it for a long time. Uh, and uh, as you say, Delaunay uh, died well before it actually happened, which is sad. His son, Pierre, took over the reins of UEFA and uh, managed to keep the idea going. And eventually the dam burst in about 1957-58. Uh, when the qualifiers began for Euro 60. There were a lot of national federations who just didn't want to get involved. They saw it as this this weird sort of artificial creation. Well, of course, all tournaments are artificial creations. That's how they get started. But the Copa America in South America had been going on since 1916, I think. Yeah. So it seems bizarre that, that Europe had no equivalent to this until like cuts of half a century later. The Germans wouldn't get involved until the 68 qualifiers because... Um, Seth Herberger, who was their manager for a long time, uh, he was implacably opposed to it. He just, he just saw it as a waste of time. And it rebounded on him in the end because West Germany went off to, West Germany sat out in 1960 and they went off to the 62 World Cup in Chile after playing only four competitive internationals in two years and uh, ended up getting knocked out in the quarterfinals of the World Cup by Yugoslavia where they were very rusty. 
and then Helmut Schön took over and he was well on for it but uh, West Germany ended up getting bounced out of the 68 qualifiers because they were incapable of winning away to Albania in Tirana the shame of Tirana they call it Schmach von Tirana um, England sat out the first one but went in for 64 but they played France in Paris and lost 5-2 Alf Ramsey I think it was his first competitive tie and he picked the lineup with five strikers and it rebounded on him so badly that he was semi-traumatised by the experience and he was never half as adventurous as that ever again and Scotland too sat out 64 which was a shame because uh, a year before the tournament they played Spain at the Bernabeu and they, they had a serious team at the time Dave Mackay Billy McNeil Dennis Law John White Alan Gilzean Ian St John all these incredible players and they went over to the Bernabeu and they beat Spain 6-2 and a year later Spain were lifting the European Championship trophy in that very stadium so it's tempting to wonder what Scotland could have achieved I mean Scotland being Scotland they probably would have you know lost to I don't know Greece or somebody in the qualifiers but uh <laughs> It's a, it's a shame that they didn't go in because they potentially could have done great things. You talk in the 1960 tournament, no home nations. The mismatches were astonishing. Uh, Spain withdrew uh, in mysterious circumstances. What opened my eyes is that uh, Yugoslavia had been 4-2 down to France, got back to 5-4, dropped the goalkeeper in a kind of Jim Layton style uh, and lost the final to the Soviet Union after extra time. So that was 1960. That must have been great for the communists to win this European tournament. Yeah, um, they, they had three of the final four. It was, it was a tournament. The final tournament was only four teams in those in those days. So the game you're talking about against France, between France and Yugoslavia, that was actually the very first finals match. It was the first semi-final. And um, it's still the highest scoring match in the history of the finals. It's 5-4 uh, finish up nine goals and uh, the French were 4-2 up and then their goalkeeper Georges Lamia um, proceeded to just have one of the biggest meltdowns in international football history uh, Yugoslavia um, came back and Lamia was at fault for pretty much I think all but one of their five goals um, just an absolute catastrophe for them Yugoslavia then went into the final against the Soviets who were just a little bit too strong for them watching the Soviets uh, the old footage of them Two things stood out about them. Their close control was incredible. They hardly ever wasted the ball. And also their physicality. They, they, looked, they, they were technically amateurs because they were all employees of the Communist Party, technically um, playing for these various works clubs like Dinamo Moscow, the police club, and CSKA, the army team. But they, their conditioning uh, was something to behold. They looked like, like men against... Uh, they, had, they had a serious um, speed and strength and size advantage. So it was it was not surprising that they were so hard to beat in those days. So there is footage um, of it? They had, oh, yeah. Um, there are DVDs of these matches, if, okay. if you know where to look. Um, now, the, the pace is unrecognisable from today. It's obviously very primitive compared to today. But they, you can still see, you can still recognise class when you see it. And they had some had some lovely players. They'd, um, they'd, they'd Lev Yashin, who was the, the best player in the world, never mind goalkeeper. Um, they'd Valeri Voronin, the midfielder, who sadly came to... A bad end years later, uh, became an alcoholic and was uh, was murdered in a park in Moscow in about 1984. Spain dodged out of playing them in the quarterfinals because Franco didn't want to see a communist team having their flag and anthem ringing around the Bernabeu. Plus, there was also a very good chance the Soviets would have beaten Spain. So Spain dodged that one. UEFA inexplicably let them off. And four years later, instead of serving a large ban from international football, the Spanish were back and 
ended up getting to host the 1964 edition where they couldn't weasel out of playing the US at all at this time in the final uh, and they narrowly beat them after extra time. Well, thank goodness that half a century later they did it properly. Just looking at the 68, uh, Italy beat Yugoslavia on a replay. Yugoslavia had beaten England. I've got the England lineup here. There are seven World Cup winners. Uh, I'm not going to test yeah. you. Uh, Banks, Moore, Wilson, Ball, Peters, Charlton, Hunt. Uh, Norman Hunter was a squad player. He also started. Uh, Nobby Stars left on the bench. Jimmy Greaves. Jeff Hurst didn't play. Uh, but England yeah. lost against Yugoslavia. Did England play well in that game? No, it was a terrible match. Um, Styles and Hurst were injured. Um, Norman Hunter came in, and Norman Hunter, in the early stages of the match, stamped on Ivica Osim, who was Yugoslavia's playmaker and would later manage them at Italia 90. Anytime you read about this match in the English press, it's all about how Alan Mullery got sent off because he was kicked to death by the Yugoslavians. It's half true. Both teams were very, very dirty. I, I think England just edged it on the, on the, the foul count. And uh, as I said, Norman Hunter put Ivica Osim out of the match. Osim stayed on the field. This is after about 10 minutes. Osim stayed on the field, but could barely walk, never mind run. Uh, he, he played a couple of passes, but that was it. There was no substitutes in those days. They didn't come in until Mexico 1970. Um, it was just a really awful match. There was on, on the match recording. The game took place in Florence, and on the match recording, you can hear the siren of a police car during a lot of the first half. And it's, it's, it's like the sporting equivalent of true crime. It's just an absolutely dreadful, dreadful game. And it was settled about two minutes from the end. Dragan Jajic, Bobby Moore let a ball go over his head, and Jajic nipped in behind Moore and scored past Banks. But um, it was one of the very few times when I was writing the book, that it felt like work. When the match finished, like, I nearly felt like putting the DVD in the bin. It was, it was that bad. It was, it was a terrible, terrible game. Well, I'm sure that a lot of journalists will have watched this because this show goes out the date that the Euros begin on the 11th of June. And of course, England's first match, Croatia. All of the team will have been sons of Yugoslavs, but they are all Croatian Yugoslavs. So that's very mm. interesting to note. 1972, there's only one name uh, to talk about. It's De Bomber. Scored two in the semi-final, two in the final. Was he just the best poacher of European football history, Gerd Muller? He was, I think. I mean, his, his record is extraordinary, Gerd Muller. He scored 68 goals in 62 games for West Germany. And that's incredible when you consider that that was a pretty defensive era he was playing in. It was, it's not something that's likely to be okay. That's more than a goal a game. It's, uh, it's an astonishing thing. Now, in 1972, he had Gunter Netzer loading the bullets for him. And Netzer, to me, was actually even more so than Muller in 1972, the outstanding individual. 1972, I think, was the tournament where the Euros opened up and began breathing. Uh, the first three tournaments weren't... The first two tournaments were quite modest, and 68 was a disaster, in my opinion. 72, I think, was when it all started to come together and catch the imagination of, of uh, the footballing public. I watched all of West Germany's four games uh, against England twice, Belgium in the semi-final in Brussels, and then the USSR, in Antwerp, I should say, and then the final against the USSR in Brussels. And after watching that, I think, I have to say in all honesty, I think they were the best team ever to win it. They, they just had quality in every position. They had a great attitude. They had about five world-class players. They had Müller, Beckenbauer, Netzer, over, I think Overath, no, Overath wasn't there. Uh, they did Grabowski, 
They did really good and it's at the top of the form. Bertie Folks missed the final and actually okay. began weeping in the dressing room beforehand and Helmut Schoen had to usher him away because in case the sight of him crying uh, unnerved the rest of the players. Mm. They replaced him, I think, with Horst Dieter Hurtkes who came in and, and played really well. The USSR, like I said, uh, there was even 12 years after 1960, they were still a really, really strong national team and the Germans just broke them over their knee. There's a spell in the first half where the Soviet keeper Rudakov makes about six amazing saves in the space of three or four minutes. It finished up three nil. It could have been a lot, lot heavier than that. It could have been conceivably seven nil or eight nil. Is that Gert Muller um, on the cover of the book in the white shirt? That's him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the cover has, well, you've got your pick of some of the best players in the world. Uh, my book, the final chapter is, who are you going to tell from the era before Bosman that they can't play as one of the 11 in your 11? Because I think, well, you've got to put, I would put Dennis Law in at nine, but Gert Muller is obviously a choice. Van Basten and Platini, who both won the Euro tournament. You've got Iniesta and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, who's very old. Who do, who do you not pick if you're picking your best 11 from your lifetime? Let's limit it. Well, let's put Levi Arshin in goal, unless you've got a better one. Well, I was going to... You, know, you said to me earlier, uh, pick an 11, so I did. Um, I would have Schmeichel as my, my number Good one. choice. Uh, purely, on the str- purely on the strength of his performances in 92, where he was exceptional. Um, he went into that tournament on the back of a, a very uneven debut season for Man United he he was badly at fault for several goals and he, uh, he so he came to the European Championships and he played amazingly in nearly every game and it culminated in, in him saving that penalty from Van Basten in the, in the semi-final but also in the final uh, he, he pulled off some brilliant saves from people like Klinsmann and Riedler um, so I've picked him as my number one Do you know what I just learned today from Simon Hattonstone's piece Theo Delaney directed those Danish bacon commercials that Schmeichel was in in the 1990s. Theo is in advertising. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> no, I will have to no, get no. Theo on to tell his story. Uh, do you play a back three, four or five? I would keep it simple. I'd go with a back four and two of the back four would be from France's 2000 team, Touram and Desai. I think that back four in general, uh, Touram, Blanc, Desai and Lizarazu yeah. uh, is the best, the best international back four of all time. Touram in particular was outstanding. He, he probably arguably stayed on a little bit too long. He was still there in 2008 and he, he got embarrassed a bit. But in, in 2000, him and Desai were at the peak of their powers. Um, at left back, I would put um, Andy Bremer, who I think played in three Euros and was progressively better in each one. He played in 84, 88 and 92. Just a, a stunning player, really. It was, it was like having two or three players in one with Bremer because not only did he defend really well, he was he was a, a, a consummate um, overlapper as well. He set up and scored God knows how many goals for Germany. And he could be pressed in at right back if he had to because he was two-footed. In fact, his right foot was stronger than his left, although he spent mm. almost all of his career on the left. So that's my number three. And number five... Uh, Behind all these would be Beckham Barr sweeping up. Absolutely magisterial player, especially in 72. Played in 76 as well and nearly won it. Not, not so much dodging tackles as ignoring them, really. Just It, was, it all came so easily to Beckham Barr. No, I'd love to go back and maybe I'll watch the 1966 World Cup final where he marked Bobby Charlton out the game. Uh, that 2000 win for France, that's a triumph for Gerard Hullier, the late Gerard Hullier and the Clairefontaine academy although it could have been so much different had not who scored an injury time equalizer in the final 
you mean? In the 2000 final. I'd forgotten this. Oh, yeah, it was, it was Sylvain Wiltord. It was a shot that went across Toldo. Toldo had had a great tournament for Italy in goal. Um, but this shot kind of passed through. I think it went through Nesta's legs, or maybe kind of our, but I think it was Nesta. And uh, Toldo saw it like, got a, got a sort of a weak hand on it and crept in, which I think was good for the tournament, although obviously not for Italy, um, because... Uh, I think it would have been a bit of a shame if Italy had won it because they were very defensive all the way through. Good team, though, they were. Um, I, I think it was good that France came back and won it. Well, certainly great for France because it was their one to second win. Uh, they'd won in 1984, thanks to Michel Platini, who at that time, greatest player in the world, Platini. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, until Maradona fully sort of flowered in the... In the mid '80s, from about '86 onwards, Platini was definitely number one. He won the Ballon d'Or three times in a row. He won the Cup Winners' Cup with Juventus weeks before the '84 Euro '84 finals, and uh, he obviously a year later he won the European Cup in obviously tragic and tarnished um, circumstances with Juventus. Yes, in Brussels. But um, no, there's, there's no doubt in the first half of the '80s, Platini was the best. There was nobody to touch him. Um, he got five goals. Sorry, he got nine goals. In five games in '84, that make, today he is still joint top scorer in the finals. Ronaldo is level with him, but it took Ronaldo like four tournaments and twenty odd games to get to nine goals, which mm-hmm. is how hard it is. Platini got nine in, in five games, which is nearly two goals a game. It's astonishing. I, I have a little bit in the book about how the, the French saw him as a lucky general, like he would always succeed at card games or poker games, and any time you put a coin into a slot machine, he'd. He'd, he'd win something. He was just, they just saw him as touched by God, really. Five years ago, I watched the Euro 2016 final with someone from Portugal. And it was so exciting because she was getting more and more involved. Of course, as a neutral, I was watching thinking, oh, well, it's pointless now because Ronaldo's been attacked by the moth. But this is five years ago. Portugal won the extra time goal scored by Edair. Edair, who gets the last goal in your massive book, Euro Summits. Do you want to bring out the unexpurgated Redux version running at about a thousand pages in thin paper? Ah, no, I mean, I, I still have the original draft here somewhere, but it's uh, a lot of what was shaved off wasn't really necessary. I think it's a better book for having been slimmed down. There's only one, there's a few things that went by the wayside, but uh, it's, um, as I say, it's more streamlined. It's, it doesn't waste time. This is, this is always the cardinal rule of decent writing, I've thought. Don't waste the reader's time. Yeah. As I say, it, it, it lost a lot of stuff. It's, it's more, um, a lot of the stuff just needed to go because it wasn't really bringing anything. There was, I mean, you, you said earlier, it was, it's a pretty detailed book. It still is, but so, uh, there's, a, there's a thin line between getting everything relevant in and uh, boring the reader. So I think that process needed to happen, definitely. And there are, there are precedents. David Goldblatt and Brian Glanville have both written enormous books, uh, which have to be comprehensive. But you can't be too comprehensive because then it will cost more to print. So pitching it at, what did you say, 175,000 words, that's enough. That will keep you through the tournament. So if you want a book to read... Uh, maybe one match day a day, uh, you can go through those. But we're looking for your front six and the names Panenka, um, Caristeas, Torres, Ronaldo and Iniesta. Do any of those feature? Actually, none of them do. I've gone with, wow. um, I, for the holding midfield, I've gone for Marcos Senna, who played for Spain at Euro 2008 and didn't put a foot wrong for the whole tournament. He was, I think he was 30 or 31 when he played in that tournament and 
I'm not even sure if he if he ended up playing for them in the 2010 World Cup two years later. But in 2008, he was impeccable. Uh, he didn't make a single mistake, I don't think, in the whole tournament. Um, for the forward, I've got two two people from the Czech team in 2004, who, who I thought were a wonderful team to watch and really should have won it. Um, Karol Boborski on the wing and Pavel Nedved for the forward. That was a brilliant team and... I always thought that one of the most unfortunate incidents in the history of the Euros was when Nedved did his knee in a collision with a Greek defender. I remember that. Half an yeah. hour into, into the semi-final, half an hour in, in 2004. And there's no doubt if he'd stayed on, the Czechs would have won easily because as, as game and plucky as Greece were, the Czechs were in a different league. But all the self-belief went out of them when Nedved went off. And uh, the Greeks ended up nicking it in uh, in the first half of extra time, and in doing so, sadly um, deprived us of a potential classic uh, Portugal Czech final, which would have been excellent, I'm sure. Um, I've got Gunter Netzer in there as well from 1972 because of again just he, he uh, the, the way he lit up uh, 1972 with those amazing performances against England at Wembley and against the Soviets in the in the final. He made, it, he made it look so easy. There's a lot of stuff about Netzer in the book. He was basically football's first sort of pop star almost. He owned a nightclub. He was a really good-looking guy with incredible hair. Uh, he, he opened up a nightclub in Mönchengladbach uh, because uh, his club, Borussia Mönchengladbach, were telling him to do something with his money. Uh, he, he asked them, you know, give, give me a job working at the club, but they didn't. So um, he... He spread his money far and wide. He's a, he's a pundit these days, a very good one apparently, on German TV. Um, there was a great picture of him that I wanted to use, but I couldn't. It's a picture of him uh, sitting on top of one of his sports cars. In, it's a beautiful black and white image. I reluctantly didn't use it in the book because there was an even better one of Jupp Heynckes, um controlling the ball in the, in the Heysel Stadium in the final in 72 with the huge Atomium sculpture looming over him from behind one of the stands. But I would have loved to use that Netzer picture. That's that's going to be uh, one of the fun... Sorry, that's going to be one of the fun parts for my book, uh, looking at the photo plates. And Pitts are always very good at... um, Because they've got access to a database. Uh, So Nedved, Netzer, Paborski, um, who had that chip in Euro 96, Marcos Senna... And that leaves two up front. Yeah, one one is going to be Platini, who we've just discussed, and of course the other one will have to be Van Basten. Uh, the thing about Van Basten, which is always very ironic in terms of his um, Euro finals participations, he played in two tournaments, 88 and 92, and in both of them he played astonishingly well. But in 88, everything went for him, and in 92, nothing went for him. He scored five goals in 88 and he scored none in 92 even though he was playing at the same level uh, both times in 92 he was just incredibly unfortunate he had a, a great goal a header disallowed against the CIS for an offside even though a CIS player was playing alongside by about a yard he had a wonderful game against the Germans when, uh, the, when the Dutch bet them 3-1 in the final group game and uh, again against the Danes in the semi-final he ran his socks off but it's the penalty Schmeichel saved it so um in, yes, in 88, he uh, just everything he touched turned to gold. He scored that amazing goal against the USSR. He scored that blistering hat-trick against uh, England in Dusseldorf. Um, and let me and guess, he played well against, against Ireland as well. No, actually, he didn't do, he didn't do much. Uh, I think it was Mick McCarthy uh, marked him. He was very quiet that day. Yeah. And in fact, he was offside by, uh, again, a good metre as Jim Keith's header 
bounced into the net with the linesman kept the flag down so I suppose maybe you could you could argue that the goal he had rubbed off against the CIS in 92 was a related payback for that but, but um, have you read his book? wonderful striking Marco Van Basten yeah. no I haven't no. brought out his memoir last year and again, he won't be celebrated like the original Ronaldo or new Ronaldo because uh, it's pre-Bosman and he retired with injury and he's, I think, quite a quiet chap. He has gone into management. I think he's now a technical director from what I remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. A hell, that is a hell of a team you have picked. Uh, so you've left out Torres, whose winning goal beat Germany in 2008 and you've missed out any number of players who could shine in this year's Euro tournament. Who are you looking forward to seeing light up the tournament? Well, it's not, it's not so much individuals as teams. I'm intrigued to I mean. see what Germany can do. What Germany can do after their disaster in in Russia three years ago. Uh, Yogi Love has obviously announced he's stepping down. It'll be interesting to see if this inspires the players to give it one last big rattle for him, or whether they kind of subconsciously take it easy because they know he's on the way out um, I, I'm interested to see what Italy do because they have a very very good record in recent Euros despite not always having the most glamorous looking squads 2012 and 2016 they both played both times they played to the absolute, absolute maximum of their limits and uh, got to the final in 2012 and nearly reached the semis just went out on penalties in 2016 so I'm intrigued to see what Mancini does I don't think he's as good a coach as Conte we'll see we'll see how he does and uh, the team nobody seems to really be talking about is Portugal even though they're the defending champions um, they've got Ronaldo on this mad mission to break Ali Dye's international goals record they've got Bruno Fernandes who is, a, is an amazing player but looks a bit tired at the end of the season so we'll see what sort of shape he's in and obviously they've got Ruben Diaz of Man City who's just been named the player of the season so uh, no, nobody seems to really be considering Portugal they, they look equally capable of winning it again or going out in that really tough group F yeah I so, don't, you, you can't uh, call it the group of death we won't be able to call it the group of death maybe we'll call it the group F uh, because it's got the it's potential F. finals yeah. uh, France, Germany <laughs> Portugal, France um, Portugal, Germany, those are going to be three huge games. And there, two are taking place in Munich. So Germany should have the advantage that we haven't mentioned. And there is no uh, stadium in Portugal. Um, I do feel sorry for someone. I think one of the games is in Azerbaijan. It kicks off at 8 p.m. British stand, uh, summertime, which is, I think, midnight or 11. And it's Azerbaijan is right, ridiculous. Money, money. Um, we haven't mentioned Penenka so much. He will definitely have been mentioned this week because England uh, and the Czech Republic play one another during the Euro. Penenka is still alive. Uh, ben Littleton's book, uh, 12 Yards, is the best one to look at for the story of that tournament. Practicing and practicing and practicing penalties. Uh, a couple of questions. Has the effect of the Euro been dulled by the Champions League? And has it been dulled by the penalty shootout? No, I, th- I think the penalty shoot has brought a lot to it. I mean, we all remember the Penenka thing. We remember Spain and Denmark in 84. We remember more recently um, Italy and England with Pirlo making a fool out of Joe Hart. I do think, I don't, I don't think the Champions League has diminished either. I think both, they're, t- they're two totally separate things. What I do think has diminished it is the spread, the, the expansion of it from 16 to 2014 was a terrible, terrible move. Name one really advantage. Name one advantage that does not involve the word ka-ching. That's it, isn't it? Yep. I mean, the, 
and there's no way they're ever going to reverse it because it's 20 extra matches. Uh, that's 20 more consignments of TV money and match day receipts. Um, but we we also we also the last Euros uh, there was far too many teams who didn't really bring anything to it. Um, the, the third place, the, the, the system of the four best third place teams going through, that resulted in a situation where a team like Albania had to sit waiting for nearly a week before finding out whether they were in or they were out. And Northern Ireland got pushed into the last 16 because Turkey beat the Czech Republic in a totally different group. That's All, all this runs counterintuitive to the whole nature of tournament football, in my opinion. It's, it should be... Like, like 16 teams was, was perfect because, okay, there weren't quite 16 good teams in Europe, but there was 11 or 12 at least. And now you've got another sort of 12 average mediocre teams clubbing it up I, I do hope this one turned out to be a lot, a lot more watchable than the last one. And maybe in a curious way, we might see more shocks because although there will be fans in the stadium, it's, it's not the same when there's only 10,000 there rather than 70,000 or whatever. So I, I do hope against hope that it'll, it'll be a good one. But um, what we saw last time out doesn't fill me with confidence. Uh, there was an amazing statistic from 2016. 12% of all the goals in the tournament were scored in just two games. Uh, France beating Iceland 5-2 and Portugal drawing with Hungary 3-3. That's one-eighth of the goals in two matches out of 51. That, that shows you how many how many undistinguished uh, games there were. So fingers crossed that this one will be will be an improvement, at least. And I, I hate to... I've got the wall chart up here. Um, some of the massive games that aren't going to be great. Uh, does anyone salivate for Switzerland, Turkey... Russia, Denmark, Ukraine, Austria, Slovakia, Spain, Sweden, Poland. There is definitely a kind of Southampton versus West Brom feel. No disrespect to some of these games. Uh, and hopefully the uh, it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday between the 26th and 29th of June. Friday and Saturday, 2nd and 3rd. Semi-finals, 6th and 7th of July. And the final on July 11th. Um, yeah, are you I mean, are you putting money on anyone, or should should we put money on Portugal then? Uh, I I don't bet myself. Although I the, the only time I bet on football is when there's a World Cup or a Euros on. I usually pick out two two strikers and put ten quid on each of them to, for two top score. And uh, at the last Euros, Antoine Griezmann came in for me at about ten to one, so I made about a hundred quid. Mm. Um, but I, some some of the fixtures don't look appetising. That's right. But as you as you, as you can probably remember, there's. Um, Sometimes at World Cups, the fixtures that look absolutely dreadful on paper end up ending 3-2 or 3-3 or something like that. I, I think the, the problem is that there's just simply too many matches. They're going to have to play 36 matches to get rid of eight teams out of 24. Again, it's, it's a complete nonsense on the face of it. Um, but like I said, there's, there's no way they'll ever change it back now. No, more is not always better in football. Less is more, except... Uh... Money, money doesn't talk, it screams. So I'm looking forward to seeing O'Shaughnessy playing for Finland. And I'm looking forward to reading Euro Summits to uh, drag our mind back to this tournament, which I know in England it's all about three lines on your shirt. And by God, we're going to hear that song for six weeks without fail. I really think the best thing to happen would be for England to go out in the second round, the round of 16, because it means we can enjoy the tournament um, apart from all the xenophobia that's going to happen. Uh, my, the really interesting thing for me is how the media cover it. 
because everyone's going to be watching on their second screen and the tabloids are kind of the last howl of, I don't know if it's like this in the Irish papers, but the red-topped newspapers cannot disgrace themselves. If they, in, if they say anything bad about Raheem Sterling that isn't about his first touch, there will be hell to pay. Um, so I just hope that your colleagues in the media, uh, not in the kind of Henry Winter, Ollie Holt uh, time, because they're very good, but the jingoistic ones. What would you say to all these journalists as someone who edits copy for a newspaper? Well, I mean, we don't really, we don't really get that over here. It's more, it's more kind of a party vibe um, for, for various different reasons. I mean, it's a much smaller country and, and uh, there's like, uh, there's, well, there's a lot of flag waving going on. It's, it's, it's of a different nature to, to England for, for various reasons. England is just so, so much a bigger country that the amount of gobshites uh, and, and dickheads is just multiplied by a factor of about 12 or 13. So obviously there's, there's going to be way more trouble. Having said that, I have a cousin who lives in London. She's she's English. Uh, she's half Asian and half Irish. Her, her parents are, were, are from Pakistan and Ireland. And uh, she was um, she was telling me, she had no interest in football. She was telling me when the last World Cup was on that she was afraid to walk down the street because it, it wasn't quite outright rioting as such. She, she lives in Ealing. And she was just saying that any time she went out, she was just there's just all these drunken lads roaring in her face and hassling her and all the rest. Um, and she she rang me um, the day after the after Croatia defeated England in the semi, and she goes, "That's it now, isn't it? It's over." And I'm like, "No, there's one more match. They've got to play Belgium on Saturday." And she was like, "Oh God, no!" She basically just bunkered down in her house. It was a it was a foretaste of the lockdown. For yeah. Her. yeah, correct. Um, well, I'm going nowhere near I, a pub. I, I live on a roundabout, so I'm sure we'll hear some way, lads, lads, lads. Well, I'm glad they find meaning in their execrable lives. They won't be able to get. I have, I've forgotten to mention the key Irish figure, who is the security guard. Guess who it is? It, the, the security guard of the football library. You're not coming in. I'll see you in there. You're not coming. It's Roy Keane. <laughs> no better man. <laughs> uh, Roy, Roy is great. Oh, God. He's, he's uh, helping Sky to do some coverage, I think, this summer with Micah Richards. Maybe ITV. Oh, it's Sky, it's Sky News on. I don't think Roy ever played in the Euros himself. He was too young for 88, and he would have been there in 92, but we just missed out by Lineker scoring in Poznan that time. And 96 and 96 of we didn't qualify in 2000 we missed out by just the agonising margin that couldn't couldn't clear a corner in the 94th minute in Macedonia um, so no I don't think he ever he played in the 94 World Cup I think that was his only tournament yes famously um, one of the best players never to play in the Euros so I suppose yes and I will the punditry will hopefully be fun I mean a lot of people will chase clicks and everything and uh, if you want really good coverage, then O'Brien with an E underscore Jonathan is the place to go. I think your Twitter feed is fantastic. And uh, I will look forward to Thank reading you. this book, Euro Summits, uh, which has a wonderful cover. It is the story of the UEFA European Championships 1960 to 2016. Final question. Will you have to include the 2020 tournament in, uh, in the paperback? Well, if, if there is a if there is a second edition, obviously yes, uh, twenty twenty one will be in there, and um, it, there will be a new front cover if it happens. And I will have to put somebody from the twenty twenty one vintage, somebody from the winning team in twenty twenty one. Oh, shocking! So, uh, so, well, <laughs> in the unlikely event of Finland, hey, uh, remember ninety two? Remember two thousand four? 
but no, I mean, if if someone if England do win, I suppose uh, Sir Harold Kane will have to be on the front somewhere. Yeah, and his his like name him. definitely will finally be Sir Harold of Kane. Um, Sir Harold of Kane. Brackets three hundred and fifty thousand pound a week from Manchester City. Isn't football great? Isn't it just? Isn't it just? Uh, thanks so much, Slanty, uh, for your wonderful work, and have a wonderful summer as well. Thank you, thank you, Johnny. Thanks a lot. Just like the library, just like the library, just like the library.